This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about an extinction event that happened 250 million years ago in Earth's past. It's a good show recorded for you here in Moab, Utah. Stay tuned. I think that's, you know, the really the story behind the the Permian-Triassic boundary extinctions and the story of so many of these other past climate changes that have happened in Earth's history is they give us sort of like, uh, this is what happened before, it probably could happen again if we're not careful. Today on Science Moab, we're speaking with Dr. Benjamin Berger. Benjamin is an associate professor of geology at Utah State University, the Uinta Basin Regional Campus. There, he studies the extinction that happened between the Permian and Triassic periods 250 million years ago. With Benjamin, we discuss the unique combinations of events that changed life on Earth. We begin our interview with Benjamin explaining where the Permian fits in the geologic timescale. So I'll talk about how geologists have divided up time. So the way that they've done it is that they separate out the rocks based on the types of life forms that you find, the types of fossils that you find in the rocks. Geologists separate out what's called the Phanerozoic, which is the period of time of visible life, meaning that you can find pretty big, decent shelly fossils uh, in those rocks. And the Phanerozoic is split up into three divisions. The oldest is the Paleozoic, uh, the middle is the Mesozoic, and the recent is the Cenozoic. And the way you can kind of think about those is that the Paleozoic is the ancient life forms, the Mesozoic is the age of dinosaurs, and the Cenozoic is the age of mammals. And the Permian period sits at the very end of the Paleozoic. And the end of the Permian marks this major division between the Paleozoic and the Mesozoic. And maybe a little bit more famous is the boundary between the Mesozoic and the Cenozoic, and that's the major extinction that wiped off the dinosaurs, the KT boundary. So the, the boundary that I've been studying is the older one that basically kicked off the Mesozoic. So this is a period of time that... Uh, that really got the age of dinosaurs started. Dinosaurs had not evolved yet when this extinction happened. So dinosaurs hadn't evolved yet, and so what was here? On land, there were a bunch of creatures. In this part of Utah, we had a lot of what are called the synapsids. There are ancestors. Synapsids have a, a single opening in the back of the skull. And uh, that's a characteristic of synapsids. And synapsids were doing really well in the Permian. We also had a lot of amphibians. And these amphibians are different than the amphibians that live today. So all modern amphibians are list amphibia, and they go th undergo metamorphosis. These amphibians that were living in the Permian didn't go through that process. They kind of hatched out like little mini versions of themselves, and then they grew up. And then we also had some very early diapsid reptiles, and those are gonna be the ancestors to dinosaurs and birds and crocodiles and a whole lineage of many animals that live today. Cool. What was the Earth like at that time? 
So at this time, all the continents had collided together and formed this supercontinent called Pangaea. Here in Utah, we would be on the western coast of the supercontinent Pangaea. And we were a little bit closer to the equator. So we were, we were just a few degrees above the equator. And in the middle of the supercontinent was the Appalachian uh, Mountains, or the big, huge, giant mountain range that was created through the collision of what would become North America, as well as Europe, as well as Africa and South America. The story of the Mesozoic is the story of the breakup of Pangaea. If you think about it, when you have all the continents on one side of the planet going almost from pole to pole, and you have an ocean on the other side, it makes it for a very strange world climatically. One of the interesting things that happens is that the ocean starts to, you know, a simple way to explain it, it starts to kind of slosh on a deck sort of over about 10 years or so, maybe even longer, maybe 50 or 40 years, would sort of slosh in terms of carrying uh, the heat. So this is what we would refer to as a, like an El Nino-La Nina sort of cycle that we have today in the Pacific. The Pacific's a huge ocean. This ocean was even bigger than Pacific. And so you get the similar situation happening. And that means that along the western coastline, you had this super monsoonal system. What I mean by super monsoonal, it would rain for like 10 years, and then it would stop and dry for 10 years and be super dry. And what's kind of cool about it for us here in Moab is that that created the red beds. So all of the red beds that you see around Moab are all Triassic and Permian a little bit. But all those red beds are formed because when you had that monsoonal system of wet and dry and wet and dry and wet and dry, it oxidized a lot of the irons in the soils and in the, in the ground. And that oxidation caused the red color. It rusted, basically. So all the rocks that are of that time period are all the rust colored. And if you drive a little north Moab, the rocks up there are these gray and white sort of banded colors. There's some purples in there and stuff, but for the most part, they're like a duller color. And those are the later Jurassic rocks. And those are when the continents had broken up and you don't have that monsoonal system anymore. So here in Utah, um, especially around Moab, you have a, a mountain range that existed here called the Ancestral Rockies. And they're unrelated to the Rocky Mountains today but they existed in the same sort of geographic area uh, into Colorado and into a little bit into Eastern Utah. There was a wing of the Ancestral Rockies that came in to about where Moab is, and that was called the Uncompadre Uplift or the Uncompadre Hills. It would look a lot like Baja, Mexico. It caused there to be uh, an ocean basin to the north and an ocean basin to the south. And the one to the south we call the Paradox Basin, and it, was kind of like a Mediterranean basin and it would occasionally get cut off. When that would happen, you would have an inland sea. It would basically either dry up or fill up with water. And there was these cycles of filling up and drying out with the water in this inland sea. And that deposited a lot of salt and that deposited the Paradox Formation. To the north, we also had another basin, the Eagle Valley Basin. And that did the same thing. It would occasionally get cut off and it formed all of the, the evaporatic deposits around Gypsum, Colorado and going all up towards Vail. And so 
that also formed a bunch of evaporitic deposits as well. And then as we enter into the Permian proper, those get covered up and you get a formation called the Cutler Formation. They're mostly sandstones and a lot of them are Aeolian sandstones. Uh, so they include like the Cedar Mesa sandstone down in Natural Bridges and to the north it includes things like the Weber sandstone that makes up the, the canyons around the Yampa River. And so those two big sort of Aeolian sand dune deposits were near the ocean. The ocean's just a little further out west, but it was very dry during that period of time here in Utah. A lot of my research has been looking at the, some of the marine rocks during this period of time. And the top one at the very end of the Permian is a unit called the Park City Formation, which is named after Park City. Um, and so the Park City Formation is a limestone. And it came in from the north, um, and it was kind of like the Red Sea is today. So you had deserts just inland, and then you had this biologically rich ocean. And it was very warm. It was near the equator. But you had all of these organisms living. Uh, you had a whole diversity of, of clammed, shelled organisms called bivalves. You had a lot of things called brachiopods, which related to bryozoans. Um, you had some ammonites that were living at this time, crinoids, which related to sea lilies, a lot of fish and sharks and stuff found in this unit. Uh, so a very diverse ecosystem that was existing. So your work then is kind of looking at this boundary and the pretty significant events that, that happened at that time. So can you go into what kind of extinction event ended up happening at the end of this Permian? My PhD dissertation was on this other global warming event called the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum just across the border in Colorado. Basically, what I was interested in was, was trying to figure out what happened to the animals uh, when you have global warming events. And the animals responded quite a bit to this event. You see sort of the, a major faunal shift that happens at the boundary. So I, I moved to Utah worked for a while as a geologist and everything and was doing a bunch of videos and one of the things driving north of our campus is they put up uh, geological signs of all the rock layers and there's this one that just points out the permian triassic boundary and it's like the world's you know big extinction the great dying so i was like well i'll go up and do a, a video and and do do a quick little uh, talk about the permian triassic um, extinction and so I started doing what I normally do, and that is to read a bunch of scientific papers about the topic. And there were some Canadian scientists who had observed a mercury anomaly at the boundary. One of my colleagues works on mercury, and she's a professor at the University of Nevada. And so I sent her some rocks, and I didn't tell her which sample was at the you know, what I suspected as being the boundary. She analyzed them and she got back to me and she said, well, one of them was, had a lot of mercury in it. And I looked at the number, you know, the sample number. And I was like, that's the boundary. And so I went back and I said, wow, we got, I think we had the boundary. We're seeing the same thing that the Canadian geologists had seen up in Canada. And so we basically went out and sampled every five centimeters. We took a rock sample and then what we wanted to do is basically figure out what it, what's all in this rock. You know, try to try to tease apart the chemistry of the rock as, as precisely as we can and move through and see some of the things that we see. 
one of the things that I kind of learned from working on Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum research is that when you have global warming events, it affects the rocks, the deposition of the rocks. Out here, we have the red beds that are indicating this monsoonal system. And when that disappears, that changes. It means the climate you know, changed. So there's a lithologic shift between the Park City Formation and Dinwiddie Formation, where you go from a limestone to a shale. And this can happen, normally this would happen if you had a marine system that got deeper and deeper. So if sea level rose, you would switch from a limestone to a shale. And that's what a lot of people had suggested. In fact, going back 50 years, all geologists said, oh, sea level rose right here. We have this big rise in sea level. The weird thing about it was that when we started analyzing the rocks, we found that the amount of carbon in the rocks decreased which is kind of the opposite. So if you have a deepening marine system, there's more water, there's more organisms living in that water column. So typically when sea level rises, you will see, and it shifts to a shale, you'll see more organic compounds coming, raining out of all these dead animals that are dying and falling onto the seafloor. And so usually there's, a, there's an increase in organic matter. So we saw a decrease, a really abrupt decrease. The other thing I looked at was um, calcium carbonate. If you have climate change, one of the things that happens is that uh, that CO2 gets incorporated into the oceans and the oceans become more acidic. So this is a big issue today. When oceans become more acidic, they start to dissolve calcium carbonate. And calcium carbonate is a really, really important compound, chemical compound for building shells. And so we measured the amount of car calcium carbonate was deposited and you see this really dramatic decrease in the amount of calcium carbonate across that section. So we had an abundance of mercury, decreasing calcium carbonate, decreasing organic carbon. So this kind of started suggesting maybe we do have the boundary. We're seeing some of the similar things that other people had seen. So we also see acidification of the world's oceans at this time. And that's an indicator of, of more CO2 in the atmosphere. The other thing we looked at that's a strong indicator of past global warming events is carbon isotopes. When you see in the rock record a shift from carbon-13 to a lot of carbon-12, that's indicating that the CO2 that's in the atmosphere that's, that's basically starting to be incorporated in the rock record it was sourced from some sort of hydrocarbons or some sort of organic material out there. That usually indicates that there is more CO2 being emitted out into the, into the atmosphere. And you see the same shift in, in modern ratios. Since the 1950s, we've gotten much more negative in terms of there's a lot more carbon-12 in the atmosphere than there used to uh, before we started using a lot of fossil fuels. So we started looking at that and noticing a decrease in the ratio, but a lot more carbon-12. So it's indicating that there's something going on. And so we started to tease out, like, all right, let's try to figure out what, what caused this extinction, because we're trying to get some good data. So we have some nasty things going on. We have abundance of CO2. We have this mercury. You know, where's the mercury coming from? And then we also had the carbon shift, the CO2, and the acidification of the ocean. A lot of people have argued that the Siberian Traps, which is this volcanic field in Asia, massive volcanic field, it's, it's huge. They've dated the basalts over there, and they, they're really precisely dated now to the Permian-Triassic boundary. So these, this volcanic field was erupting. 
Now typically volcanic rocks have a lot of CO2, so we're seeing that, but they're not super rich in mercury. But what is really rich in mercury is coal. And one of the things that we think is going on is that when the Siberian traps were erupting, they were erupting out into a basin which a fair amount of coal. And so the coal caught on fire, of course. It's in a volcano, and it started erupting all of this coal, and that emitted lots of CO2. And that CO2, instead of being like limestone, which has a lot of carbon-13, it had a lot of carbon-12, is organic coal has lots of carbon-12. And so that carbon-12 got up into the atmosphere, as well as a lot of mercury. Well, of course, when you burn that coal, you re-release that mercury back into the atmosphere. So that's what causes that spike. There's one other thing that coal emits uh, is sulfur. One of the really weird things, when you start getting our rock samples and we grind them up and try to analyze them, we would see something really weird in the rocks at the boundary, and that is pyrite. Pyrite is iron and sulfur. And typically in, in sedimentary rocks, pyrite is really only kind of found in deep marine rock. These are deposited deep in the ocean where there's very little oxygen. But these were shallow marine rocks. And I knew that because if you look at the sedimentary structures, you look at these little wavy patterns in the rocks, they indicated that they were low, you know, shallow enough that the waves were affecting the sedimentation. So that meant that really shallow water was anoxic, meaning it had no oxygen in it. And that was really scary. Now, Pyrite has been observed all over the world. Um, it was first documented at the PT boundary, at the Permian-Triassic boundary in Japan in 1997, I believe. People have proposed that one of the killers, one of the things that caused this extinction is the lack of oxygen in the water. And so what was going on was that as the world was heating up and getting hotter and hotter and hotter during this event, the oceans themselves were unable to dissolve much oxygen. So the warmer water is, the less it can dissolve oxygen. So if it gets too warm, there's no oxygen, and it creates these dead zones. So anything that utilizes oxygen can't live in the oceans. And so we're seeing that a very shallow layer. The next crazy thing that I looked at was an element called barium. And barium is really interesting because Barium is an element that is found, it, it bubbles out of deep sea vents. And as soon as it gets, it bubbles out of these deep sea vents, it bonds to sulfate and forms barite. Barite's a solid and it tumbles out of the water. So when it comes out, there's a fair amount of sulfate in the ocean floor. It reacts to the sulfate and it becomes barite and it gets deposited on the seafloor. So a lot of oceanographers will study barite because when they see a, a spike in barite, usually indicates some sort of upwelling event or something going on. So I was kind of interested in trying to figure out like a way to measure how anoxic this was. What we kind of figured out was that we'd see these spikes of barium at the same point where we're seeing the pyrite spikes. And what that seems to indicate is that there was an upwelling going on, and then we would have these anoxic zones and we get the pyrite formation. Barium had been used in the Paleocene Eocene Thermal Maximum as a way to try to figure out what caused that event. And these barium spikes seem to indicate that there was upwelling of methane in deep in the ocean. 
And so what we think was going on was that once the ocean got warmer and warmer and warmer, and especially in the deepest parts of the ocean, it started to sublimate the methane that was down there. And in the methane that's sort of captured in this like weird ice crystal that forms only in the deep ocean, when it warms up, it, it releases the methane, but it also releases barium and in the form of this barite, and it releases it and it comes up. And so this methane starts bubbling up and that provides a food source for the bacteria that are living because they're the bacteria that can survive without having oxygen. Best way to kind of explain what's going on, I think, is, is to think of the ocean as inverting. The organisms that lived at the ocean, in the ocean sediments underground, are now living on the surface of the ocean. So these include sulfate-reducing bacteria. So they only live in places where you find very little oxygen. And one of the scary things about these organisms, especially the sulfate-reducing organisms, is that they utilize sulfur as their currency of respiration. So instead of oxygen, they take sulfur. And what they do is they grab the sulfur as sulfate, they strip off the oxygen, and they attach a hydrogen and make sulfide, uh, hydrogen sulfide, H2S. And H2S is a very poisonous and nasty gas, and they start releasing a lot of H2S. And that gets released out of the oceans. And that's when things get really scary because that will start affecting the animals that live on land. The H2S is, can oxidize and it can be basically form a, a sulfuric uh, acid. And that's gonna, of course, affect the plants as well. This is one of the few extinctions that we see, a mass extinction of insects as well. So it's gonna affect the insects, especially they can't breathe the H2S either. And so they start going extinct. So this extinction was, there's different estimates of how many species went extinct out there, depending on how you measure species across this boundary. But I've seen numbers as high as 97% of life went extinct. So it was really a bad extinction. A lot of animals died. What kind of time frame are these events over? Okay, so this is where it gets really crazy. So um, our estimates right now are about 60 to 75,000 years in duration, uh, which is similar to what they've gotten in China, which geologically is really fast. Uh, 60,000 years is a pretty small span of time when you're talking about this event was 251.9 million years ago. So it's just a very thin slice of time. The duration of 60,000 years is really, really short, geologically speaking. And though, first things that we see at the very beginning are the ocean acidification and the mercury. Then we start seeing the other things. We start seeing the meth methane release, and then we start seeing some of the uh, sulfate-reducing bacteria in the pyrite zones a little bit higher. And so it played out during that period of time. Throughout this whole interval, uh, we're seeing an increase in CO2 based on the isotopic composition of the carbon that we're looking at. It was quick and it was deadly, a lot quicker than I think geologists had suspected. What did survive? What was a, what was that 3% of life that made it through? And then what changed that allowed life to rebound? Yeah, so this is the cool question. This is what I'm working on right now, and that is trying to find fossils above that zone and seeing who was the first to come back. The first things that die and disappear are the coral reefs. Um, there's two types of corals that were living at this time. The Ragosa corals, which are the horn corals. You also get another group of corals called the tabulata corals. They all went extinct. 
And in fact, in the Triassic is this long period of time with no coral reefs on the planet. The other group that did really badly were the brachiopods. They really got knocked out. They died off. Uh, the trilobites, you know, trilobites are these really, you know, common fossils that you find throughout the Paleozoic. They all go extinct. The very first fossil that you find above this zone is a little brachiopod called Linguinia. And it has a really unique adaptation that probably was very good to survive this event. And that is it had this fleshy stalk that extends out on the bottom side of it. And it uses that fleshy stalk to anchor itself into a burrow. If it senses like danger, it can use that pedicle and suck itself back down deep underground in its burrow and bury itself. And it's a survivor and it has a really extensive fossil record. And it's the very first thing that we start seeing. There's some bivalves that start coming in at this point and they had a tolerance to low oxygen uh, water so they could survive in low oxygen, which is important. But the other thing that they had was that they produced tons of planktonic larvae. They produce a lot of offspring and they're mobile. So that's a, it was starting to colonize when things started to get a little bit better. And then as you move up, you start getting some other things that start appearing. Some ammonites start coming in, they start seeing they survived, which is funny because they don't, they don't survive the KT boundary. As you get up a little bit higher, you get, you get some of the echinoderms that had made it through. They start appearing in the fossil record. But one of the really weird ones is a fish. The fish do quite well. It's one of the organisms that, that's able to diversify after this. And part of that diversification was probably utilizing spawning in some of these safer estuaries and rivers, getting out of the ocean. The animals that really got impacted by this event were the sessile animals, the animals that stayed in place, the corals, you know. Those were the ones that were doomed that couldn't escape when the, the ocean started changing and they couldn't leave the ocean like the fish were able to do. I'm curious specifically, how does an ocean deacidify? What changed with the biogeochemical cycling of the earth that made it not so toxic? The big thing is um, to get the plants back. And so when you get the plants back, they're going to start pulling that CO2 out of the atmosphere. So with the Permian-Triassic boundary, that took a really long time because it's such a severe extinction. The Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum, it was fairly quick. About 100,000 years, we start seeing temperatures drop back down. And that's when we start seeing the forests grow. So as the forests come back, then we start seeing a lot more of the CO2 being stripped out and pulled out of the atmosphere and things start to cool down again. So there's this wonderful cycle between the plants, the health of the forests are going to help strip out a lot of that CO2 because they're using it. And then of course they have to die and get buried to get that carbon out of the system. And uh, that takes time, that takes time. So. Um, yeah, it's really the plants coming back to help get, get things. Does your research have application into what's happening with climate change today? Yeah, yeah. And so it has huge implications for today because we're seeing many of the same things. I mean, it has huge implications because one of the first things that you see is the death of the coral reefs. And the coral reefs are like dying right now. And so we're seeing this change happening. It also gives us a worst case scenario as well. So if you think about it, 
the volcano could not stop erupting. It was just going to keep burning that coal. But we humans, we can we can stop burning coal. And so one of the things that gives us kind of a way to start trying to budget how much we can burn and what starts to happen. And so it tells us that things can go back to normal, which is kind of a reassuring thing, that if we you know stop and releasing CO2 into the atmosphere, that things can return back to normal. But it also indicates that there is an extreme case that if you keep burning fossil fuels and keep emitting CO2, and we, then really dire things can start happening uh, over a fairly short amount of time. And so you have to monitor that really carefully the amount of CO2 and regulate it. So I think that's, you know, the really the story behind the, the Permian-Triassic boundary extinctions and the story of so many of these other past climate changes that have happened in Earth's history as they give us sort of like, a, this is what happened before, it probably could happen again if we're not careful. What first got you interested in studying past climate change and geology and these Earth processes? So I've been studying geology and paleontology for a very long time and my earliest recollection is I, I always had a rock collection growing up and my uh, mom had given me a rock hammer and I remember I grew up in Colorado and we went up into the mountains to collect wood and I remember using the rock hammer and breaking open rocks and stuff and finding all sorts of cool things inside and I found this this she shell this this fossil clam up in the mountains, up way up in the Rockies. And I, I remember like opening it up and looking around at these snow-capped mountains all around me. And I had, you know, a shell from the ocean. And it just amazed me that these mountains were underwater at one point. So it really taught me like that the world can change in the past and the world was very, very different in the past. So that kind of spurred me on. And what do you enjoy about being a scientist? I really, really enjoy treasure hunting, um, <laughs> going out into the desert to try to find something. I just have a blast trying to find stuff. A lot of times it's silly things that I'm looking for. You know, I'll hear about a fossil discovery, a fossil site, and trying to relocate it, you know, from 100 years ago. So I love, like, that aspect of science where it's a treasure hunting story. Well, Benjamin, thank you so much for taking the time to come oh, talk thanks. to us. Thanks, Christina. It's been super interesting. Yeah. <laughs> to listen to this interview with Benjamin Berger again or any of our past shows, visit kzmu.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music is by Jeremy Spaulding. Funding is provided by the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies, and the show is produced by Christina Young, Peggy Hodgkins, and KZMU.